The following is a CSPN Media podcast presentation. Hello, and welcome to Know the Score. I'm your host, Don Delorente, and I'm joined by the Libra icon, Dwayne. What's going on, man? Happy New Year to all. Not much going on. Just glad to be back doing this again. Yes, yes. It's been a little bit of a hiatus for the holidays, but we're back. Get everybody caught up on the happenings in the sports world. Know the score can be found on Twitter at KTSPod. You can also find us on our website at www.cspn.us. You can also listen to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play. So, Dwayne, of course, New Year's Day brings college football. And this year, it brought the college football playoffs. Right. As we had the Georgia Bulldogs and the Oklahoma Sooners face off against each other out in Pasadena, California, and the granddaddy of them all at the Rose Bowl. And we got an all-time classic, probably the best Rose Bowl since Vince Young led Texas to the upset victory over USC, uh, the best college football team that many of us have ever seen in our lives if you're, you know, of the – 30-plus, almost 40-plus-year-old range. Um, Georgia won 54-48 to in double overtime to advance to the national championship game. Uh, this was kind of like a basketball game. It was a game of runs. Oklahoma started fast, took Georgia a little bit of time to adjust. Um, they got a late field goal to go into halftime, only down seven at 24-17. to And then they, um, you know, faltered on the next drive. Oklahoma came back out, went right back down the field, got another touchdown. But then Georgia kind of stabilized themselves. They tied the game. And then from there, Georgia went on their little momentum streak. And then Oklahoma found it again. And then we wound up in overtime and double overtime. And uh, Georgia was just able to make, you know, one more play on defense than Oklahoma surprisingly was. So, Dwayne, kind of give me your take on the game, how it played out. And uh, just, you know, I think a lot of people didn't expect it to be this much of a shootout. Yeah, I didn't expect much of a shootout either, but it was really kind of can Oklahoma stay making a shootout because they're, they, they specialize more in offense. Georgia's more defensive team, so it was surprising to see Georgia get the offense going. Nick Chubb, Son, uh, Sonny Michelle, they both went crazy. And, and then the freshman quarterback for Georgia – uh, Jake Fromm, I want to say it is. That's his name, I, I believe. He he was lights out too, and you know, for him to be a freshman in one of the biggest stages of college football and perform like that was pretty amazing. The block field goal really was the difference, uh, and and then the very next play, Georgia sealed the deal. So it was a really really good game. I enjoyed I enjoyed it. You know, Georgia is a defense team, but they had to really rely on the offense to get the job done, and they did. Shout out to them. Yeah, the game seemed to um, play out early that Oklahoma's speed and their tempo of their offense uh, was keeping Georgia off balance. They couldn't, you know, get their substitutions in, and um, just Oklahoma was gashing them. But kind of towards halftime and especially in that third quarter, once Georgia kind of figured it out a little bit and they started getting stops, then that's when the running game in Georgia was able to, you know, kind of take over and get them in the game. 
and Chubb and Michelle both had just long, spectacular uh, touchdown runs. Uh, they were gashing Oklahoma for really big chunks, and then that opened up the play-action passing game, of course. And then, you know, freshman quarterback can thrive with only having to read half the field. And uh, the opportunities were there, and he and he hit the big plates. So, you know, hats off to Georgia. Hats off to Oklahoma as well. I, th- I You know, I think a lot of people thought – that, you know, Georgia's defense would just overwhelm them. I, I think that uh, Baker Mayfield, out of all the quote-unquote top-level quarterbacks in this upcoming draft, you know, showed the most in the game that he was showcased in. I mean, right from the start, you know, he was he was on the money. And uh, so, you know, big ups to Oklahoma. They had a great season considering that they had a, you know, coaching change um, at the beginning of the year. Bob Stoops stepped down. Lincoln Riley stepped in and, you know, they got him back to the playoff, uh, a place they haven't been in several years. So, you know, not a bad season for Oklahoma. Now we move on to the second game, which took place down in New Orleans at the Sugar Bowl, a rematch of the last two national championship games as we had the Alabama Crimson Tide defeat the Clemson Tigers 24-6. to uh, Alabama's defense was suffocating, and then, of course, their running game dominated. Uh, Clemson could just never get out of the blocks. Uh, Kelly Bryant uh, looked like a freshman finally, and uh, I think the rest really helped Alabama. Uh, they could get their um, injured linebackers healthy. Um, you know, they could get their offensive linemen and their running backs who've been nicked up a little bit healthier. And, uh, you know, Jalen Hurts just controlled the game, didn't make any major mistakes, and, um, you know, they just grinded out a win. So, uh, Dwayne, uh, your takes on, uh, you know, Alabama uh, stuffing out Clemson. Yeah, this was a very anticlimactic game, and it really just showed the value of Deshaun Watson the last two years of how he was really the guy that got Clemson going against Alabama. Even in the loss in the first national championship, he was he was lights out. You know, Alabama made one more play on offense that game. And then, of course, the clutch play in the game last year when Clemson won it all. So it was really sorely the Deshaun Watson factor for Clemson. And, you know, Clemson's going to be bad. Clemson's going to be fine. They've had one great run these last few years with two title appearances, a semifinal appearance in the CFP. And then with the Crimson Tide, you know, people say they shouldn't have been in, but they proved that they should have. And, you know, can, did the committee get it right? Did they not? I think they did. You know, there's a Alabama quote-unquote bias, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, you, they picked the four best teams to go, and Alabama was just one of those four. If Auburn would have did their job, they would have been in. If Miami would have done their job, they would have been in. If Ohio State didn't get dragged by Iowa, they would have been in. So Alabama did. Alabama things and won the game, plain and simple. All right. So that brings us to Championship Monday, where we're going to have Georgia versus Alabama in the brand new Mercedes Benz Dome down in Atlanta. So basically, this is the SEC Championship game everybody thought we were going to get before Auburn crashed the party and demolished Alabama. So Georgia basically is going to have a home game to win the national championship. This is the biggest game that Georgia's played in in over 30 years. It's in their backyard, but it's versus Nick Saban and Alabama. A bunch of ties here to Alabama uh, through Georgia, of course, uh, 
Kirby Smart, the Georgia head coach, used to be the defensive coordinator for Alabama for several years at the beginning of the Nick Saban run there. So, Dwayne, who do you got? Championship Monday. Who's walking away with the big trophy? So, Nick Saban is undefeated against guys who've been under him. Um, but I have a feeling that this is going to change. I think this time the, the pupil's going to beat the master. I'm going with Georgia. I think they have the best chance to beat Alabama. I think they have the the running game to match up with Alabama's defense. I think they have the offense to get it going. I also think that, you know, these two teams are so evenly matched on defense against Alabama's offense. I think they'll frustrate Jalen Hurts. I think that Alabama is going to have a – somewhat cocky demeanor coming into the game. I think they believe they have this in the bag. But Nick Saban's going to get his guys prepared, but I think Kirby Smart's going to get his guys prepared as well. And at, at the end of it, I believe Georgia's going to win. I want to go with Georgia. All right. I think the same thing. I think that the home crowd and, um, you know, Georgia this year, just having those two running backs, like you said, they can match Alabama time of possession. They have a defense that can fly around just as fast as Alabama can frustrate them. Uh, They have the cornerbacks to match up uh, with the great receiver that Alabama has. So I think also where Georgia has an edge in this game will be in the special teams because their punt returner is special. And if he gets a little crease, he can take one back at any time. And and that could definitely turn the tide of a game, a long punt return or punt return for a touchdown. So I'm going to give Georgia the edge uh, in the special teams and just, you know, being at home and having all those fans there in such a big game, brand new stadium. um, You know, just just everything seems like it's pointing in Georgia's favor for them to pull this off and, and for just Atlanta to have one big party. So I'm going to look for Kirby Smart to upset. The master, as Dwayne said, uh, for the very first time, give Nick Saban a loss against someone who studied under him. Kind of like, you know, how Bill Belichick has that mastery over his former assistant coaches. Kind of the same thing that Nick Saban has as well. So uh, we'll see how it plays out. It's always fun when championships are decided. And that will happen this Monday night in Atlanta between Georgia and Alabama. I'm your host, Don DeLorente. I'm joined by the Libra icon, Dwayne, and this is Know the Score. We're going to transition into the NFL playoffs as this is wild card weekend. As we record this on Saturday, we're getting prepared for two games to take place. But first, we had a wild into the game on Sunday, the very last game of the afternoon, as it was the Bengals and the Ravens. The Ravens in a position, win and they're in. The Bengals basically playing for the love of Marvin Lewis and the love of each other. And the bitter cold, Andy Dalton on fourth and 12 with just minutes to go in the fourth quarter. Connects with Tyler Boyd and the Bengals upset the Ravens on the road to give Marvin Lewis a win going out. Not only does this knock the Ravens out of the playoffs, but this allows the Buffalo Bills to end the second longest playoff drought in the NFL as they qualify for the playoffs for the first time since 1999. Now, if you are old enough to remember the last time that they played in the playoffs, they got beat on the Tennessee Titans miracle play where Frank Wachek threw the ball back and they ran it up the sideline. Uh, the 
image of Wade Phillips just looking dumbfounded on the sideline will forever be etched in my memory. But this is great for Buffalo. Those fans have endured a lot. Uh, Kyle Williams uh, was, you know, so emotional in the locker room with his kids. Uh, the, just the joy of those guys in the locker room sticking around uh, down in Miami after they won their game to see if they were qualified for the playoffs. And Andy Dalton, you know, give him some credit. He's had a rough season, but, you know, he finished strong. And, and the Bengals, to their credit, um, you know, played hard and uh they outplayed the ravens for most of the game the ravens you know woke up in the third quarter fourth quarter had the lead but couldn't sustain it and so now we have the bills going to the playoffs so Dwayne, just talk about the bills the season um and all the wrong moves that they made and still somehow they're going to be still playing they're one of the last eight teams well, shout out to Carolina North, uh, aka the Buffalo Bills. Uh, no, but on the serious tip, this is well deserved. You know, they did have the longest playoff drought in the NFL currently until that Sunday night when the Bengals scored that winning touchdown. Um, Nineteen ninety nine was a very long time ago, and Kevin Dyson broke Buffalo's hearts. And I was actually just looking at that play the other day, and so. You know, for the Buffalo Bills, they've been through a lot. I think we went, we kind of were criticizing them because they benched Tyrod Taylor for no reason, and they started Nathan Peterman, who was awful, and so they went right back to Tyrod, and Tyrod got them to the playoffs. So give Tyrod Taylor a lot of credit, a lot of professionalism, because he could have took it a whole other way, sabotaged himself, sabotaged the team. And could have been, they could have been going in a completely different direction. But now with the Bills and the, with the Bills and the playoffs now, and it feels like 1999 over again. Not just the Bills are in, the Titans are in, the Jaguars are in. So it's really a great feeling. Bills fans have been amazing. They've been given charitable donations to Andy Dalton's foundation. They've been given donations to Tyler Boyd's uh, charitable causes. They've also sent wings to the Bengals. And so it's really been an awesome thing to see. Yeah, yeah, definitely for those long-suffering fans. Um, you know, the dedication uh, of those people who sat out there during that game against the Colts in 10 inches of snow, um, you know, to, to see their team win, Shady McCoy getting the game-winning touchdown, treasuring through snow. Um, you know, those people have been loyal. And they've seen a lot of bad football, a lot of close losses. So, like you said, tip your hat to Tyrod Taylor for his professionalism and the way that he's handled himself uh, through his time in Baltimore. Um, you know, for years being the backup quarterback, never really given a fair shot to be the starter, then getting a chance here with Buffalo, being yo-yoed around, having different head coaches, offensive coordinators, but still finding a way to persevere. So, um, you know, hopefully he does well and, and he can, you know, move on or at least show well in this uh, playoff run for Buffalo. So now we're going to get to the games as on Saturday, as we record this, the Titans qualified with Marcus Mariota on fourth and three, stiff arming the Titans into the playoffs go against the Kansas city chiefs. Um, it's going to be very, very cold in Kansas city. And uh, you know, so the Titans are going to have their work cut out for them as they're predominantly a running team and kind of the weakness of the chiefs defense this year has been their passing defense. Marcus Peters hasn't been the shutdown corner. He was a year ago. Eric Berry was lost for the season early this year. And Justin Houston hasn't been terrorizing quarterbacks uh, like he has in the past. 
So, Dwayne, I know you're really close with the Titans. So give us kind of your insight on how the Titans could somehow pull this upset off. Marcus Mariota qualifying for the playoffs for the very first time. Uh, he's got a very daunting task ahead of him on the road in Kansas City. Yeah, it's a very daunting task for Mariota and the Titans in the loudest house in the NFL, Arrowhead Stadium. That will be a huge factor. Uh, those fans in Kansas City are amazing. They're loud. They're proud. It's going to be a great environment there. So uh, with the Titans, what they need to do is run Derrick Henry. You don't have DeMarco Murray, which is a blow for this team, but run Derrick Henry, make timely plays with the passing game, use Delaney Walker, your big tight end, make the long ball, Corey Davis, Rashard Matthews, and, you know, don't make stupid penalties. Taylor Lewan has been known to make a dumb penalty or two in a game but he cannot make any dumb penalties in this game. They have to play smart. And even though Kansas City struggled after starting off 5-0, and they went 4, they went 5-6 and six down the stretch. Something tells me that playoff Alex Smith will be activated for this game, and he's going to have a great game. And so I kind of see Kansas City's offense coming alive, and the defense just has to be prepared for anything. They need to make sure – you know, watch the passes underneath, get hands on the ball at the line of scrimmage, keep Kareem Hunt between the tackles because if he does get to the outside, this lights out. Contain Tyreek Hill on defense. I, I believe Adoree Jackson will probably be on him most of the game, so that's going to be a very interesting matchup. Both of those guys are quick. And Kevin Byard, who tied the league with eight interceptions, he has a lot to he has a lot to work to do from the safety position. So, if the Titans can just play smart on offense and defense, both sides of the ball, run the ball predominantly, and make timely plays in the passing game with Mariota and his receivers and Delaney Walker, they can pull the upset off. But they also got to watch out for the crowd noise. The crowd noise will definitely be a factor. I think a big thing to watch in this game will be first and second down uh, defense for the Titans. If their front seven can uh, keep Kansas City in a third and long situation where they can employ their pressure defense and they can kind of come with their exotic blitz packages and they can, you know, get their cornerbacks because the strength of the Titans is their secondary more than their front seven. But if they get you in third and long and they can, you know, get those Dick LeBeau, uh, you know, zone blitz schemes coming out there, you know, they may be able to confuse Alex Smith just a little bit, you know, since he's going to have a whole bunch of moving parts going with his offense as well, you know, with Andy Reid kind of doing more of the college style, you know, jet actions and, you know, kind of, you know, pre-snap movement. So if the Chiefs have a lot of third and longs, I think the Titans will be very successful in this football game. Uh, so that will be something to watch for um, as the day progresses in that football game. Now we're going to shift over to the other game that's going to take place on Saturday, a game that uh, has the potential to be a shootout. It could be a lot of fireworks between the Falcons and the Los Angeles Rams. The Rams are returning to the playoffs for the first time in a long time and for the first time in a long time in L.A. So expect to see a lot of people, uh, you know, high profile people on the sidelines. This will probably be the place to be uh, today in L.A. Um, this game um, could it could go one or two ways. The Rams could really dominate the Falcons and, and jump on them early. And the Falcons not really be able to recover, or this could be a who has the ball last or whose defense makes the last play type of football game. So, Dwayne, uh, what are your thoughts between the Falcons and the Rams? 
So my thoughts on the Falcons and Rams, I think the Falcons and their fans have a little confidence because they keep talking about the last time they were in L.A., how they won 42-14. Pretty much they were up 42 nothing, and the Rams got garbage time points in. But people forget, this is when the Rams were coached under Jeff Fisher and his mediocrity. This is a team that is rejuvenated. This is a team that's motivated. This is a team that can put points on the board. And with that being said, this has, like you said, Don, this has the potential to be a shootout. And and if the Rams get going early, if Ty Gurley gets an 80-yard run or 80-yard pass, watch out. This team, catch, it's like lightning in a bottle. They will catch it, and they will go with it. And I think the Falcons have a lot of work cut out for them. I also think that they can match up with the Rams offensively as well. So many weapons on that side of the ball, Matt Ryan, Julio Jones, uh, Freeman and Coleman in the backfield. And they, the Falcons have the chance to upend the Rams and go to Philadelphia because they have been here before. And so that experience factor gives me the slight edge to the Falcons. I'm going to watch how Jared Goff takes in this playoff atmosphere, How because this is a young team at the end of the day, still a young team. A lot of players haven't been here before, and you're going against the NFC champions. So my edge in this one goes to the Falcons because of that uh, championship appearance and their mission to get back to the Super Bowl. But you got to really be careful for the Rams. Like I said, they catch lightning in a bottle. It's a wrap, and they could go to Minnesota on that on that note. So just a lot of things to watch out for in this game, and we'll see what happens. As a person who has a very vested interest in what Sean McVay does as a head coach, this will be a very interesting game for me because Sean McVay's offense as the Redskins offensive coordinator always had trouble with teams who had very good edge pass rushers and who could play the cover three defense with very, you know, good cornerbacks, um, long cornerbacks, and a rangy safety who can get to, you know, both sides of the field. So that's exactly the style of defense Atlanta plays. Uh, They may be a little bit more aggressive with it than Seattle is as far as they play a little bit more press with their uh, cornerbacks. So it would be very interesting to see today if maybe it wasn't the scheme of the Redskins, but the talent of the Redskins that was holding the Sean McVay offense back against the stronger defenses uh, that they would come up against uh, while he was the offensive coordinator. So uh, that'll be what I'm looking for today. Can the Rams, um, you know, do what they do normally? I mean, they're a 30 point a game offense. Um, They're at home. Like you said, first playoff game for Jared Goff as well. So, you know, he's going to be nervous. Todd Gurley, his first chance to be in the playoffs, you know, rookie head coach. So, you know, all this is new. So, you know, uh, the Falcons have been here before. So, you know, maybe that experience will overcome all the excitement and jubilation for the Rams. We'll move over to the Sunday games where we have the aforementioned Buffalo Bills traveling down to Jacksonville to take on the upstart Jacksonville Jaguars as they're back in the playoffs after a long drought as well. Uh, We've got two great defenses and, you know, some, you know, offenses who, you know, leave a lot to be desired. So this could come down to a game of uh, the field goal kickers uh, down in Jacksonville. So, Dwayne, who has the edge, uh, Jacksonville at home or the Bills riding the high of being in the playoffs for the first time in 17 seasons? 
Uh, this is a tough one because these teams are eerily similar. They have a great running back. Um, Shady McCoy is questionable. Uh, that ankle was pretty was pretty uh, gruesome. So, but they say he may be back for it for the playoff game. I don't know yet, but so you you want to put the match between Fournette and McCoy. You got Taylor and Blake Bortles. Both teams don't really – they have receivers. Allen Hearns is back for Jacksonville and Kelvin Benjamin for the Bills, who hasn't really been too much of a factor since he's arrived. Um, And it will come down to the defense, and I agree. I think there is a lot of ties here. Doug Marone was the coach of the Bills before he went to Jacksonville and then eventually became the coach of the Jaguars. Um, I think he knows a lot of those guys that are still there. I think that's going to be an intangible as well. I'm going to go with Duval till we die. That's the hashtag. That's the rallying cry for the postseason for the Jaguars. So I'm going to say, I'm going to say the Jaguars have the advantage. Uh, Saxonville will be in full force. First playoff appearance since 2007 for them. And I think we're going to see something special. I'm going with the Jaguars winning and taking it to Pittsburgh for a rematch with the Steelers. All right. Yeah, I'd like to see uh, Jacksonville as well. Give a shout out to my cousin Dougie, who's been a Jacksonville Jaguar season ticket holder for at least a decade, I know, and uh, finally got a payoff. He's been telling me for five seasons in a row that this was the year. And finally, this was the year. So congratulations to the Jaguars and their fans earning a home playoff game this year. And then we're going to move to our final wild card game of the weekend. Probably the game that most people are looking forward to. Probably people think going to be the most tightly contested game. Uh, the Panthers are traveling down to New Orleans to face their OFO, the New Orleans Saints. Again, uh, this game took place not too long ago, um, so we you know get a really good feel for you know these teams. Three times these teams will have faced each other this season. Uh, you know this is basically the rubber match. The Saints have swept the Panthers. Um, Got him in week two. Got him again, and I think it was like week thirteen or week fourteen. So you know, I know the Saints should be feeling pretty good, um, but um, you know, you just never know with the Panthers. They're so Jekyll and Hyde. They came down to Atlanta last weekend in a game that they they really needed to win to kind of stabilize their playoff positioning. And Cam Newton was not good. He was inaccurate. Uh, the running game couldn't get going. They just looked meh. And you know, the Saints handled their business. They put up a lot of points and did what they needed to do to, you know, handle their business until, oh, something strange happened. Jameis Winston connected on a deep ball, and they got beat at the last second. So, um, And it kind of changed the order of the playoffs so that, you know, Saints went from not having to play the Panthers again to now having to play the Panthers again in this wild card weekend. So, Dwayne, I know you're very familiar with this rivalry. Um, you know, your personal loyalties are, you know, definitely going to be um, showing in this game. So what do you think? Uh, is good Cam Newton going to show up in the Superdome today or on Sunday, excuse me? Heavy sigh. So this is – there's always been an adage in sports, it's tough to beat a team three times. But shout out to uh, Russell Baxter, a uh, Bax football guru. I kind of looked at his timeline, and and this was one of the things that was said. Out of the last 20 times, the two division foes have played for a third time. The team that's won twice has won 13 to 20, which is 65% of the time. So with that being said, I love Carolina. I love the Panthers. This team has been very, very up and down, but they've 
showed up all season long. So eleven and five, they had a chance to have a home playoff game and possibly have the Saints come to Charlotte instead of them going to New Orleans. But and that's where the Superdome comes into play. That's where the Saints fans come into play. They are loud. They are proud. They are they are very very hyped. And this is something that has always been a motive. It just keep, it's something about that crowd that just gets the Saints mojo going. If the Panthers can get the offense going, if they can get the run game going, if they can contain Alvin Kamara, I think Kamara is going to be the X factor for the Saints, and I think Christian McCaffrey is going to be the X factor for the Panthers. If you contain those X factors, if either team contains those X factors, they'll get the win. My prediction, I really, really want the Panthers to win on the fan side, but I want to go and say I've been saying the Saints have something special going all season, and I'm going to continue that trend. So my professional side, I want to go with the Saints. But, of course, I hope that doesn't happen. And Alvin Kamara is going to be that X factor. I hope I'm wrong. I really hope I'm wrong. But that's what my gut is telling me, and I can't go against that. It'll be very interesting to see if Sean Payton sticks with the formula he's used all season to, you know, stick with his running game, even if the Saints, you know, get behind early, like the good cam does show up, maybe Carolina's defense gets a fumble, you know, uh, early drive or something, they get down 10 to nothing. It'll be interesting to see if he kind of abandons the running game and the style of offense that he's called all year and kind of gives Drew Brees kind of goes back to the, you know, Drew Brees, you know, 35, 40 time attempt type game. Or if he remains patient, remains calm, and just keeps feeding those two running backs and eventually, you know, excuse the pun, but the levy breaks and they can kind of, you know, uh, take control of the game and get back into it. So that'll be what I'll be watching for, you know, uh, just Sean Payton's play call and how many pass attempts uh, Drew Brees has in this football game. If he, you know, remains within 25 and below um, and they stick with the formula of giving the running backs, you know, their 20 carries each, um, I think that'll work out well for the Saints. Again, this is Know the Score. We're brought to you by CSPN. You can find us on www.cspn.us. You can also find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitch Radio, and Google Play. Please download, subscribe, rate, and review Know the Score. So with the end of the NFL season, of course, people lose their jobs. So there's an NFL coaching carousel currently spinning around in motion, and some coaches got off. So, John Fox is out as the Bears coach. Bruce Arians retires from the Arizona Cardinals, along with Carson Palmer as well this week, announced his retirement from the NFL. Jim Caldwell got fired by the Detroit Lions. Chuck McConnell is finally out as as the Colts coach. And Jack Del Rio was fired by the Raiders. Now, the Raiders are an interesting case, as it is expected they are to announce John Gruden as their head coach on Tuesday with reported 10 years. $100 million contract, the largest coaching contract in the history of sports. Somehow, they have figured out a way to lure John Gruden out of the Monday Night Football booth and back onto the sidelines of the Oakland, soon-to-be Las Vegas Raiders. Dwayne, is this going to blow up in the Raiders' face? Oh, boy. Al Davis is rolling over in his grave. If there was one thing that would never have happened. And I can, I should say never, say never, but this was a never factor here. 
If Al Davis was still alive, John Gruden would not even would still be in that booth. John Gruden always wanted to go back to Oakland. Al Davis did not want him back. Mark Davis wanted him back. And so it's going to be something that is very interesting. I think it's going to start out with the nice little honeymoon phase. How is he going to handle Marshawn Lynch? How is he going to handle Derek Carr? Um, how is he going to handle, you know, all the all the defensive side of the ball? Who's he going to bring in as the coordinator? Because you know, this was this was really just a it was messy from the beginning. I mean, Jack Del Rio didn't know he was getting fired until he stepped into his post game press conference. So that was just that was just bad news from there and. And the only reason why I think Mark Davis knew he could get John Green to come out and hand out all this money, I think, I think it will be good for the first couple years in Vegas, and then we're gonna see how it goes from there. And if there's gonna be turmoil or or something that's just not gonna make make Mark Davis very happy or Reggie McKenzie happy. So try, maybe we'll see a power struggle. I don't know. Uh, there was a report saying he had a stake in the team as well, so that's even more sticking it to Al Davis. So John Green's got a lot of credit for the Tony Dungy guys that he inherited and won the Super Bowl, and it's going to be interesting to see how it goes. I mean, you got 10 years to win, it, win another one, and will it happen? I don't know. We shall see. This is a tailor-made John Gruden situation, though, where you have a team that's kind of right there on the cusp. That's maybe a lot of people feel underachieved this year for whatever reason, um, whether it was the defense not being as good, the offense not creating the big plays like it did last year, and, um, you know, Derek Carr not playing up to his ability. This is kind of the perfect situation where John Gruden can kind of come in, be a taskmaster, tighten up some things that are, you know, maybe a little leaky as far as the discipline goes and, and practicing and things of that nature. And like you said, for the first two or three years, four years of that, you know, it's cool. But then once those guys become veterans and they've heard that for three or four years and you still are going as hard, yeah, it does kind of wear thin on people. And, you know, you, you kind of lose your uh, message and, and your, you know, ferociousness and your toughness and your bite kind of starts to, you know, lessen when it comes to your veteran players. So I think that having such a long contract is really going to be to their detriment. Um, like you said, especially if we start having some losing seasons and we start getting like a power struggle. I mean, he's going to have so much power and you're going to have to pay him so much if you get out from underneath the contract that, I mean, there's no salary cap on coaches, but good gracious. <laughs> I mean, you don't want to pay somebody that's not working for you $50 million if you don't have to. So um, it's going to be very interesting. I, I just don't understand why Gruden would come out of the booth and take on all the stress. Um, he was basically going to be the John Madden for this generation. Um, as long as he was in the booth, he was always going to be the you know biggest personality on ESPN's football coverage. Um, you know, they – made special shows for him to highlight them for the draft and, and they've gone out of their way to accommodate them in, in every turn. So, um, you know, money talks, as they say, and a uh, hundred million dollars is a whole lot of money. Last but not least on the coaching carousel and a last second maneuver that shocked a lot of people, Marvin Lewis, who was expected to leave the Bengals prior to the last game against the Ravens. 
got a two-year extension to remain as head coach of the Cincinnati Bengals. So Paul Brown digged into couch cushions and found some little extra change that he could give out to Marvin for two more years. And the Bengals are going to try to, you know, keep keep it rolling. They're going to make some, uh, you know, assistant coaching changes and coordinator changes. But Marvin Lewis is back, and, um, you know, they're going to try to retool and come out and try it again. So what do you think about Marvin Lewis? Another two-year extension with the uh, Cincinnati Bengals. If I'm a Bengals fan, I would be furious. I, you you had Marvin Lewis out the door. You wanted Andy Dalton to go out with him. And then at the 11th hour, they're both going to be stuck with you for two more years. Mike Brown did not want to pay a new coach the market value. So he decided to dig up his coins and just give Marvin Lewis just a little bit more money just to stay. I don't think Marvin never wanted to leave. But the writing was on the wall at the time, and it's still on the wall. Even though they won their last game, and it was supposed to have been the last hurrah for Marvin Yeh. Come on, man. They had the golden chance, but we remember at the end of the day who the Bengals' owner is. Mike Brown, who wants to be Jerry Jones but doesn't have the resources and will be cheap. And it's just... don't know what's gonna ha- what's gonna happen from here. It's as bad as Marvin Lewis disciple Hugh Jackson still being the Browns head coach after going one and thirty one in the last two years. So Ohio football is disastrous right now, and I feel bad for Bengals fans. They really thought it was an end of an era, truly. And here we go. They got two more years of the same same thing. Now give Marvin credit. I give him credit for changing the culture, making the Bengals more of a winner than they have been prior to his arrival. But they still have, they need to win more games. They need to have deeper runs in the playoffs if they're going to be successful these next two years. Yeah, agreed. Um, you know, Marvin Lewis, um, one of the best defensive coordinators uh, to ever be a defensive coordinator, uh, definitely deserved to be a head coach. Uh, probably should have been the head coach of the Redskins, but uh, this team went a different way at that time. And, um, you know, he's gotten to the Bengals. And like you said, he's definitely, um, you know, got them to, um, you know, respectability from where they were. Um, he's had some bad luck when it comes to the playoffs. Um, you know, Carson Palmer getting his knee blown out is, you know, first and foremost on the, you know, list of things that have, you know, happened to him in the playoff games that have led to his 0-7 record. But, you know, for the most part, he's he's gotten the Bengals in the conversation. And, you know, if you – were around in the late eighties and early nineties, uh, in two and earlier two thousands. That's definitely uh, more than enough to reward him with uh, two more years. So, you know, congratulations to Marvin, and uh, hopefully they can get over the hump. You know, one playoff win would definitely change the whole narrative for Marvin Lewis and his coaching tenure in Cincinnati. Know the score is brought to you this week by Amazon.com. Please. Visit our website at www.cspn.us. Scroll down the page where it says support the podcast and click on the hyperlink to Amazon.com. Do your shopping as you normally would. Buy a winter jacket, hat, gloves, scarves, because it's cold everywhere in the country. And a little bit of that purchase will come back here to know the score to help keep the podcast free each and every week. Again, that's cspn.us, then amazon.com. Do your shopping as you normally would. Help keep each and every podcast here on the CSPN free each and every week. We thank you for your support. 
So now our final topic of the week will be a little NBA basketball. Uh, major topics of the week, we had Isaiah Thomas 2.0 made his debut with the Cavaliers this week. We had James Harden hurt his hamstring against the Lakers, and it looks like he's going to be out for at least two weeks. And Steph Curry made his return after missing three weeks. He made 10 threes in his first game, and then he hit a game-winning three against Dallas. So Dwayne, I wanted to speak on any of those three you know, top NBA uh, headlines or something that stood out to you in uh, the NBA this past week. Well, uh, Steph Curry doing Steph Curry things. Um, you know, he's clearly healthy again, and the shot was just falling. So it was really more of a rest factor, no rust at all. The Warriors doing the Warriors things, uh, getting back in the fold. So my f- interesting thing is to see how the Rockets are going to perform uh, with Harden out. I want to say Chris Paul is – he may be back. He may not be back just yet. So uh, how the Rockets going to sustain – their success that they've had right now. Um, and Isaiah Thomas, uh, 17 points in 19 minutes, showing he's still a dynamic scorer that, you know, everybody thought he would struggle or coming back from injury, but he's clearly shown that he is healthy. He is doing well. And my other tidbit to add, the Celtics, they won five in a row, and they're already at, 42 games right now, you know, so they've played half their schedule in in just a few months, so there's going to be a lot of breaks for them coming out. Uh, the Lakers, they've dropped nine in a row, losing to the Hornets. Um, Lonzo Ball did return. He had 11-4-5. and five. Um, So I wonder if they're going to – what's going to happen with Luke Walton, you know, because is he going to still be navigating the project or, or – um, Will he or will he falter? Um, I think one of the things that Luke Walton is 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 really missing the boat on is he's not starting Kuzma. Um, he had to start him at a, a necessity because of injury right before Lonzo Ball got hurt and they were playing their best ball of the season. Lonzo was playing his best ball. Kuzma, um, you know, went on a, a streak there where, where he was uh, putting up, you know, strong 25 points a game. Brandon Ingram seemed to be able to, you know, have a little bit more freedom to, to roam and, and do his thing. And the Lakers seemed to kind of be, you know, showing a little bit, a bit of promise. And then Lonzo got hurt. And then now that uh, Brooke Lopez is back in the lineup, uh, he's got Kuzma coming back off the bench again. And they seem to be kind of struggling to score um, unlike they were uh, earlier um, in that little stretch where they played the Warriors, the Rockets, really tough, you know, and like, you know, back-to-back games. And uh, people were like, hey, you know, the Lakers really have something here. But um, it seems like they've um, kind of regressed uh, since Alonzo since Alonzo Ball's been hurt. As far as Steph Curry goes, um, you know, he was battling a hand-wrist injury for a lot of the season, and he was trying to just play through it. So I think the ankle roll and being out for the three weeks was kind of a blessing in disguise where it, you know, took him away from, you know, his normal shooting routine, allowed his hand and wrist to, you know, heal up. And as Dwayne said, uh, you know, he just came back, you know, fire and dart. Um, you know, he put up great numbers against Dallas, against I think that game winner was against the Grizzlies. And uh, I guess Dallas was the game winner. The 10 threes was against the Grizzlies. And then he had another great performance against the Rockets. So, you know, Steph Curry is definitely back and in charge. Uh, one last thing we'll uh, talk about in NBA was the Jackie McMullen of ESPN article kind of uh, detailing 
a little bit more of what was going on within the Cavs organization, uh, specifically dealing with Kyrie Irving and kind of the way that he dealt with his coaches and teammates and his relationship, uh, his final year in Cleveland and uh, kind of how it pertained to just his, his makeup and, and the way that he thought and, and just some interesting interactions he had with his coach. Uh, Tyron Lue, they had a, a little snippet that stood out to me where they were talking about pushing the ball up the court and Kyrie was kind of, you know, confused about why they would want to push the ball up the court. And he said, you know, the reason was to help uh, uh, Richard Jefferson and uh, um, J.R. Smith get easier shots. And uh, Kyrie's first response to pushing the ball was, why would you want to push it? I can get my shot off any time. And Tyron Lue was like, no, so we can get, you know, RJ and J.R. easier shots. And Kyrie's response was, oh, that's number 23's job. So, you know, kind of the mentality that Kyrie has of, you know, he's definitely not a point guard in, in the traditional sense of get my teammates involved, help them get easy shots, and then I kind of pick up the scraps where I can fit in. So, Dwayne, kind of your um, thoughts on that article, the reporting that Jack McMullen did, and some things that stood out to you uh, from the article that she wrote. Well, the article that Jackie wrote, Jackie McMullen is a great, great journalist i love her work and so this was a very good insightful article into the mind of kyrie irving and what kyrie irving was pretty much seeking was another challenge i think he took on the challenge he wanted to do things his way he and when he doesn't get challenged he gets bored and i think towards the end of the line he was getting bored with being lebron's quote-unquote sidekick uh, he wasn't being the primary option at all. Um, it was just one of those things where it ran its course. I do believe he wanted to stay in Cleveland. I think a lot of people in Cleveland feel like his dad wanted him out of of that organization. And Kyrie wasn't going to wait on no nobody. He wasn't going to wait on LeBron to quote-unquote hand him the keys to the franchise. Kyrie was I think LeBron expected Kyrie to kind of like fall in line, but Kyrie's not that kind of person. And that's what stood out to me in that article. And that's why uh, he wanted, you know, it wasn't the fact that he wanted out. He was traded. His, he was traded. The trade demand came after he realized the Cavs were trying to get Eric Bledsoe, who's under LeBron. So that's where the mindset of, hey, LeBron does not want me here. LeBron's kind of running the show. And, so if I'm not wanted here, why should I stay here? And so that's what, and that got misconstrued as he wants out. Um, but he was traded. He did not walk away from the team. He was traded to another team. And he's getting challenged in Boston with Brad Stevens and being the leader of a young Celtics team uh, cost, who is a, more cost-efficient than potentially maxing out Isaiah Thomas and having three max contracts on that team. So... It was, as much as I wanted IT to be a Celtic for a long time, I get why the trade was made. And Kyrie's very, he's still got two years under his current deal and, you know, no need to negotiate at the moment. And we'll see how that will play out when the time comes. But at the end of the day, it was a great article to read. And I got more insight on the mind of Kyrie Irving. He just needs to be stimulated. And when he's stimulated and engaged, He's he really does do special things. 
All right. So, Dwayne, at this time, we're going to open it up to you for your final thoughts and your shout outs and thank yous. All right. So, final thought was the Patriots article by Seth Wickersham. That was some very compelling writing into the mindset of the three prominent figures in the Patriots organization, uh, Robert Kraft, Bill Belichick, Tom Brady, kind of the power struggle between the the three. I want to say it was more more of Belichick wanting to keep the future of the franchise going with Jimmy Garoppolo, Tom Brady saying he could play until his mid-40s with his friend and trainer and uh, divide in the organization. And then when Robert Kraft pretty much said, you know, trade Jimmy Garoppolo and Bill Belichick who contacted Kyle Shanahan and decided to pull the trigger and trade Jimmy Garoppolo. Apparently the article said there's a big hug between Kraft and Brady and showing that Brady is still going to be the guy. Um, That was a really compelling article. Um, Of course, the Patriots put out a statement from all three saying we're all united. Uh, There's a lot of inaccuracies, but I think that's just a good PR stunt to kind of quell the noise, and we'll see what happens in the offseason. Shout-outs to my parents, always supportive. Um, My friends who do listen to the podcast, who do support me, I appreciate it greatly. Um, Rest in peace to my mom's best friend, uh, one of my aunts, Enzo. I'm going to miss you, and that's my final thought. Fuck cancer. All right. My final thought, I'm going to give a shout-out to the Carolina Hurricanes hockey team. Uh, The Carolina Hurricanes have had a long playoff drought, and currently they are standing two points or three points firmly into the last wild-card spot. Um, This is the first time that they've been uh, this secure into the playoffs in like four or five years. That's a big season for the team. Uh, They've got new ownership. Uh, They brought in a new goalie, uh, Scott Darling from the Chicago Blackhawks. And, um, you know, this year, Cam Ward, who's been a longtime favorite, was supposed to be, you know, relegated to kind of backup spot duty. But uh, Cam Ward has actually – uh, done more than be just a spot goalie. He's actually like 10-0-2 since November 7th. So, you know, he's really helped, uh, you know, get the Hurricanes going in the right direction. Uh, they had a, you know, resounding victory uh, in Pittsburgh, 4 to nothing. Uh, shut those guys out. So that was a statement win. So hopefully they can keep it going and uh, bring playoff hockey back to Raleigh, North Carolina. So for the Libra icon, Dwayne, I'm Don DeLaRente, and now you know the score.